Pray Love with Taslima Ali. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh and welcome back to Voice of the Cape 91.3 FM. Of course, it's Eid Pray Love every Saturday and Sunday from 4 to 6 p.m. And wasn't that uh, Sister Hind Usman just totally amazing? Subhanallah, I could like listen to her forever. But then again, being able to listen to the lives of our Sahabia is also so precious and inshallah may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enable us to be in the company of so many more that are able to enrich us in that way but for now we are we have a sister in studio Dr. Hadija Jaffa who is currently living in Jeddah and visiting us in Cape Town. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh doctor. Wa alaikum salam taslima and listeners and uh, thank you for having me here. Alhamdulillah, I need to say shukran to you. I'm sure that um, when you get to visit um, home, which I'm hoping Cape Town's still home, yes, yes. <laughs> Alhamdulillah, that I'm sure that the schedule gets quite busy having to catch up with everyone. So I need to say shukran to you firstly for joining us on Voice of the Cape 91.3 FM. But I need to, I'm going to go straight into it. So doctor, you're practicing medicine in Jeddah. Um, I am. Um I uh, I'm not exactly in practicing medicine in Jeddah. Mm-hmm. It's um about maybe 120 kilometers north of Jeddah on the way to Medina. People who've maybe been for Umrah Hajj and take the road from the airport going northwards to Medina may um, be familiar with with the territory. So it's it's in in that vicinity. Um a little bit out of uh, out of the city right now. Alhamdulillah. So you're visiting uh, Cape Town at the moment and it's a period when you, when we on this side start greeting all of the Hujaj that are heading over to perform their Hajj. Have, um, uh, having to live in Jeddah, are you privileged to be able to um, go in and perform as many Umrahs and Hajj if you wanted to? Um, Alhamdulillah, with Umrah, there's no restrictions mm-hmm. for locals. Um, there would be times of the year where they may sort of, uh, you know, try to, I wouldn't say discourage, but, you know, when it's peak Ramadan, there have been times where they've sort of made statements to people telling them, you know, try not to go too often because there's so many people and give people a chance from outside. Mm-hmm. But for Umrah, there's no real restriction. There's no physical restriction. For Hajj, however, even for people who are either um, citizens or residents there, um the official uh, restriction applies same as anywhere else, that there has to be a five-year time period uh, before which um, the person can um, do hajj again, um, perform hajj again. And even for local people who want to do hajj, they um, legally need to go through a recognized um, hajj operator. Really, I, I didn't actually even realize that, that the locals have to do an application as well. Yes, I, and this, um, probably the only exclusion are the residents of Mecca, 
themselves uh-huh. where they can't. But because there's a checkpoint and borders around the Makkah region, mm. they actually check on people entering into um, into Mecca, closer to the Hajj time. And um, there are actually quite serious and severe penalties that can be imposed mm-hmm. on people if they do Hajj, you know, in, in their terms, illegally. However, I mean, Hajj is an invitation from Allah. So, so many people do go and, you know, have gone despite these restrictions or despite these legalities. Um, but officially, yes, you have to go through a, a tour operator and hajj operator and do it, um, you know, the legal way. So practicing um, on that side now, or rather living that side, has it been quite an adjustment? Um, I think any uh, new environment um, would be an adjustment. Um, there are differences. There are similarities, I suppose. Um, and there's an adjustment period as well. I think where people, when they move from their comfort zone, when they move from what they've grown up and been used to and go into a new environment, um, that there is a a time period before one um, can adjust. But yes, definitely. I think after a while, you know, the human being being of this type of resilient nature can adapt to almost anywhere. I think Saudi Arabia is still one of those places where we find lots of our, our professionals considering careers that side, or perhaps uh, teaching English, whether it's the medical professions and, and stuff. In your experience, um, what would you say as to someone that is considering doing it? Um, for young professionals who are thinking of going to work, um, you know, they need to be careful, go through a recognized agency or um, uh, somebody who is um, maybe known to others to have done uh, good business and practice ethical business because so many people have had bad experiences. They have been, um, you know, uh, I suppose for lack of a better word, um, misled. Um, in terms of their contracts and in terms of what their jobs would entail. So be careful, um, you know, try to do your homework, try to speak to other people before you go and, and go with an open mind, know what you're getting yourself in for to a certain extent, but expect surprises as well. Inshallah. But, you know, I need to say, I think we are at an advantage because since you are a doctor and we do have our hajjaj that are leaving soon and you are resident in Saudi, perhaps you can give us an insight into preparations that some of our hajjis need to perhaps consider um, before going over. Um, Okay. I mean, I I would say from a medical point of view, um, people should be aware of their conditions, of course. Um, try to get their health optimal before they leave. So, you know, sort out all their health issues, get their full checkups, um, have all their medications, their chronic medications on hand, have prescriptions from the doctors for the chronic medications just in case the bag gets lost or, you know, something happens. And at least the um, the, the, the haji will have the prescriptions, they'll know what the medications are meant to be and they can um, avail uh, the services there um, and try and get equivalent. Um, I mean, I know uh, there are lots of 
sort of places to go for help. One of it, of course, being Sawuka as well. They have a full medical team. Um, and then the local services um, do offer uh, free health care at Hajj time for, for all Hujaj coming from anywhere. So um, they don't need to be afraid, you know, even if they have chronic conditions. Just be aware of your your health, your status, your family, the people who are accompanying you also need to be aware of it. And, um, you know, go go with a positive spirit. You're the guest of Allah. Allah will take care of you and your health. Inshallah, I mean, mm-hmm. and we often happen that happens when you hear somebody is leaving and they're going on Hajj, and if you go and greet and you sit and listen to everyone, it can be quite overwhelming because everyone gives you a long list of preparations, mm-hmm. what you need to pack, those rubber bands that you need to make to keep your arm, your sleeves up, and those <laughs> type of things. In terms of those things, um, doctor, what did you say? Okay, again, I mean, there are lots more people more experienced and, you know, who can give better advice to locals. Um, But just from a practical point of view, I suppose, as a doctor, um, I would say that even if you don't have chronic medical conditions, you're just the ordinary person, you know, relatively healthy going for Hajj, try and be a little bit fit before you go. So if you are not in the habit of doing regular exercise, um, at least minimum walk, you know, start walking in preparation for your Hajj. Try to get your your fitness level up a little bit because um, I think you know, people, uh, yeah, we're very spoiled. We get in our cars, we go everywhere, we just, you know, dive everywhere. And there your um, your physical um, uh, condition is very important in order to be able to, to perform um, and do all the ibadat and get the maximum out of the five days of hajj. Um, it it's advisable that you take care of your health and that if you can be a little bit fit by the time you reach those five days, that's also an advantage. Whether you're doing the walking hajj or not, you don't know what might happen. Buses break down. Often people are asked to walk long distances which they were not prepared for. And being fit and being um, in a good frame of mind would help. Inshallah. But I'm going to go in back into the life in Jeddah itself because obviously you're Cape Townian. So we tend to go everywhere with with Cape Town. But um, having spoken already about the little adjustments in terms of community and people, cuisine and all of those type of things, how has it been? Um, I think there's, there's an advantage or there's a benefit to being in um, an environment such as what we find ourselves there in that it is really very diverse and multicultural. And I don't think I would have been ever, I mean, had I stayed on here, maybe I would not, I can't say never, but the opportunities to interact with lots of different kind of people mm. um, has been, I suppose, one of the big, I would consider it to be a big advantage of having worked there for, you know, and lived outside of Cape Town. Um, Many people come from all over the world to work there. So in in that way, um, it's almost as if you've entered the mini United Nations, you know, having an opportunity to interact with so many different kinds of people. And especially the experience of meeting other Muslims from other parts of the world and being able to um, interact 
get an idea of what your similarities, your differences are. Um, I think that that's been a huge learning experience and an enriching experience for most times. And at the same time, an opportunity to be a little bit grateful for my own upbringing, the way, you know, my parents raised me, the way we were raised here. There's some things that you can hold on to and take out and actually look at in a very positive way. Alhamdulillah. And then actual lifestyle in terms of cuisine and having to, um, are you, uh, is everything seen to in uh, by the, are you, I'm not too sure if you're actually part, if the medical team then is part of a, um, a center and all the doctors oh. and everyone is in one and then you're actually taking, everything is taken care of or are you on your own and then? No, n- normally if, I mean the people from here who go over, it depends on the profession, like it differs sometimes between institutions as well. Mm-hmm. So for us, yes, we were fortunate in that, you know, the contract comes with the benefits of housing and, you know, all your basic needs are taken care of, um, such as, uh, you know, a place to stay, um, uh, being able to get a ticket back to to visit your family, um, the ability to have your family with you, you know, your kids. Your, my, my husband's actually the one who had the contract, and because of him, you know, my myself, my kids are there as well. So, um, alhamdulillah, I mean, it depends on who you work for, what type of contract, what type of profession you're in. Um, so those kind of things can be taken care of, and in some cases it's a bit more challenging depending on, you know, the type of job that you've got. Um, in terms of, uh, you, you asked about cuisine and local things and food. Oh, we still take, I mean, when I, I always shudder to think that the people at the airport, it, when we enter Jeddah, are going to open our bags because they're just going to see a whole lot of food stuffs <laughs> in there. <laughs> are we are we that starved or deprived? Which we are not. But you know, you always want your little things, your little spices that you're used to having. The the you know what you don't get there. But if you take all that away, I mean, you're living in an environment which is, um, I suppose, very rich in in food in terms of as I I said, and especially. Jeddah, because Jeddah is part of the Hijaz, and it was also the main port of entry for people coming for Umrah and Hajj and for trade. So it's a very um, diverse ethnically community. Yes, there are Saudis, but even the people, the Arabs of that region, um, are very intermixed with other people who came as traders. So um, you you'll find a uh, you know a very diverse range of food available. Um, cuisine available um, and um, you know I suppose that's one of the favorite pastimes there is for people to go out and eat (laughs) (laughs) it's not always such a good thing from a health point of view but there's an abundance of food I want to ask something though because I you know the last time I was in Umda I was like you know people do tend to go they're obviously going mostly for your body but they do tend to go uh, shopping and wanting to bring um, something back home for mm-hmm. family and friends. So around the Haram, you have all of these shops and all of these malls, and that is in Mecca and Medina as well. But in terms of residents, do they also shop there or 
is it something like, you know, like here we have the waterfront. And so when tourists come, they go and do their shopping at waterfront. But us locals need not, need not necessarily do that because we know that those are tourist prices and not really, um, you know, the things that we would need. Would there be actually places like away from Haram that's actually more uh, cost effective? Um, you need not name them. Yeah. It's just like, is, is the thought correct or mm. are we off track? Uh, you're probably correct. I mean, I'm not that familiar with, with the cities of Mecca and Medina because I don't live there. So we also only go there for ibadat purposes and we're only familiar with as what you see, you know, as a mm. visitor coming for Umrah, the places around the Haram. But um, yes, I mean, in terms of um, obviously the shopkeepers who are there, they see the Umrah and Hajj trade as a business. So uh, prices would be, um, you know, uh, adjusted so that they can get the fair trade or what they would consider to be the maximum out of these tourists, the, 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 the religious tourists. And religious tourism is becoming a bigger and bigger thing. As you can see, there's a lot of commercialization of the, the holy cities, which is not necessarily a good thing. And um, I think it is a conscious move towards this religious tourism to try to maximize and make as much money out of people coming for, for Hajj and Umrah. And, you know, maybe this happened in response to falling oil prices and, you know, and need to look at other opportunities to generate income. Um, in the last two years, Umrah visas have increased in number as well. Um, you know, before they used to have relative quotas for Umrah. They've done away with these numbers of Umrah visitors have increased. And um, I suppose this is all um, a means of, of income generating. The problem for our people is that um, yes, there would be cheaper places or cheaper options if they wanted to look for things, but they have to balance that against their time. Their time is very precious. Their time is very limited. And time mm. is also money. Yes. So if you're there specifically for Ibadat primarily and your secondary purpose is just to take a little bit of stuff home, I mean, don't waste your time going out and looking for where you can get these things cheaper unless you're with somebody who knows the place and who's taking you mm. because sometimes transport and taxis and those kind of things become costlier mm. um, especially now with the poor exchange rate and you know the rent not being that favorable in regards to the the reals anymore like years ago um, you know making all that effort and all that time just to save a couple of rands here and there mm. it's not worth it um, you know I mean ask around talk to your, the travel agents who are taking you they're very good with these kind of things those who go every year can advise the the, the hujaj where to still within the confines of 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 where they are to be able to do their shopping a little bit uh, more cost effectively inshallah well we need to go in for a quick ad break and hopefully when we come back uh, you'll get to share that lovely recipe what are we doing today the voice of the Eat, pray, love with Taslima Ali. Assalamu and welcome back to Voice of the Cape 91.3 FM. If you've just joined us, we have Dr. Hadija Jaffa in studio with us all the way from Jeddah. And uh, you got to get those pens ready because she's going to be sharing a lovely Arab uh, recipe with us. Doctor, what are we doing today? 
Um, this is a, a very easy recipe, and that's mm-hmm. why I I can actually make it. Um, <laughs> I'm not that good with making all the fancy baklavas and those kind of sweets that are very time-consuming. Um, it's not strictly a Saudi um, recipe. It's an Arab recipe, actually originally Egyptian. Mm-hmm. And there's a long story that goes with Om Ali, where it got its name from. Um, one of the more interesting versions is that... Um, Om Ali was the um, the wife of a, a ruler, and he took a second wife, and uh, you know she was obviously not that happy. And then after some time, when the second wife passed on, the first wife Om Ali was so happy she um, had a special sweet created to honor the occasion oh of the death goodness. of the second wife. No, that's one of the more interesting <laughs> yeah. stories. I don't know if it's true. Okay, that's uh, quite interesting. So what is Um Ali though? Okay, Um Ali is like our bread pudding. Mm-hmm. I think maybe that's why, um, you know, I, I thought I'd share it because uh. it has a little bit in common with, you know, our own tradition. And, and who doesn't love a good bread pudding? Yes, especially in this weather. Yeah. Um, and... Um, even though it's made with um, phyllo pastry, which is not that easy to come by, mm. I've got an alternate way, which, I'm, which is the recipe I'm going to share with uh, the audience, an okay. alternate way of preparing it, which is quite easy. Okay. All right. And um, So what uh, are we going to be needing? Okay. Uh, Ingredient-wise, you need two and a half cups of milk. Okay. Um, a quarter cup of sugar. Um the, you need about a teaspoon of rose essence, no, no, about a quarter teaspoon of rose essence. Um, or if you don't like that flavor, which my children don't, so um, you can substitute a bit of vanilla essence then. Um, and a stick cinnamon. And optional to make it a little bit more rich and creamy, um, either a half can of Nestle cream, because I think here you don't get the small the, the flat tins of cream like you do there. Oh, you do get you the do small get nestle okay, cream. So it's just that you don't find it everywhere. Yes, okay, so either the small one or half of the big one, or you can have a half a cup of fresh cream even. And then um, the um, additional ingredients for, for just um, uh, your toppings would be some desiccated coconut, a variety of chopped nuts. The favoured one there is pistachios. Pistachio, yes. pistachio. But you could use flaked almonds. Mm. You could use um, raw cashews, you know, mm. the unflavoured, unsalted cashews. And then, um, you know, optional, again, sultanas. Okay. That, that belongs in there. So do you want to just go over the ingredients one more time for those that are writing? Okay. For those that are writing, I left out the main ingredient. <laughs> it's meant to be... Um, about 10 sheets of phyllo pastry but because that's difficult to come by and not everybody knows how to bake and work with phyllo pastry even I don't use phyllo pastry Mm. Um, uh, I use three to four croissants okay um, which you have to prepare before you do your dessert so you slice them in half and you toast them a little bit in in a warm oven so that they crisp up Mm. and um, uh, alternate to the croissants, you could use just regular pastry as well. Okay. Um, but uh, the croissants work quite well, and they, you know, they available everywhere, and they don't require that much of effort. Mm-hmm. So you could make this dessert if you had three leftover croissants somewhere in your freezer or in your fridge, and you have unexpected guests because most of the other ingredients you'd have in your home anyway. <laughs> okay. So, would you like me to go through the method? 
Yes. Okay. So, oh, you said the ingredients again. The ingredients, again. So, just one more time, okay. and then we do um, the method. Three if they're large, or four if they're medium-sized plain croissants, two and a half cups of milk, a quarter cup of sugar, some flavoring, either the rose essence or vanilla essence, a stick of cinnamon, and a, um, if it's the large can of Nestle cream, half, or the small can, or a half cup of fresh cream. And then a little bit like a... Uh, a little bit meaning a half cup of coconut, chopped nuts, and maybe just a tablespoon of sultanas. Okay. So how do we make this? Okay. What you need to do is you need to, as I said, on the one side, uh, toast up or crisp up your croissants a little bit. Not very brown, but just so that they get a bit crispy. Um, cut them in half so that they're not so doughy and thick anymore. And then while you're doing that on the one side, you can start preparing your milk. So you put the milk and sugar and stick cinnamon into a pot and um, you stir it constantly mm -hmm. until it comes to the boil. But you need to do this slowly so that the milk can um, reduce and evaporate a little bit. And this adds to the richness of the dessert. Um, once this milk mixture has you know, just come to the boil, um, you remove it. You don't let it boil. You know, you reach that point where it's almost boiling, but you've done it in a slow way. Um, you remove it from the uh, from the stove. In the meantime, you switch your oven on to mm. about 180, okay. and um, you keep it ready um, because the next bit goes really fast. So you take your croissants, which has already been a little bit crisped up. You just break them up with your hand. Take a, um, an oven-proof dish. You layer the, the bottom with some of this croissant that's been um, broken up. And then you pour some of your milk mixture over it. Sprinkle a little bit of coconut, nuts, and a few sultanas. Um, and then you repeat it again okay. with another layer of the croissant. You can do it three times. Okay. That should use up all your milk mixture. Oh, sorry, the cream. <laughs> when you've... Um, when you've finished um, boiling your, uh, or heating your milk, you can just whip up a little bit of that cream into your mixture with uh, an egg whisk, okay. just to give it a little bit of lightness. Okay. Um, and then you do that, your three layers, top it with coconut, nuts, and uh, sultanas, pop it in the oven for only about 10 minutes, just so that it's starting to set. 10 to 15 minutes is enough. You don't want all the moisture to be absorbed into the pastry. Um, and then you take it out, and when it cools down slightly, you can serve it. So Sounds it's a warm dessert. Sounds absolutely delicious. Absolutely delicious. Hopefully, we'll get to uh, share it on Facebook a little bit later on. Um, but, uh, Doctor, I need to say shukran so much for you for joining us on Voice of the Cape 91.3 FM. Any message for the family? Uh, Afwa, no. Um, a message to the Hujaj, inshallah. Um, you know, May all of you uh, travel safely. Um, may you all have your health and strength to perform all the ibadat. Stay focused. Go with an open mind, um, you know, uh, to be mentally and physically prepared is very important. But there's, there are so many things that could be out of all our control. Yes, there are lots of things that you may look at and say, this could be done better, this could be done differently, why is it so poorly organized? But don't let these things distract you. You're the guest of Allah. You've been brought for a purpose and a single purpose and 
keep your minds focused on that and, and, and stay safe and stay healthy, inshallah. Inshallah. And remember us all in your du'as. Ameen. Shukran so much, uh, Dr. Khadija Jaffa, for joining us on Voice of the Cape 91.3 FM. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam. Shukran, Sister Taslima, for having me.